Um, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our series to the book of Acts. If you want to turn there in your Bible, it'll also be on the screen. If you were to look back in history and uh, evaluate, and I were to ask you, what were what are the most significant, important five to ten days in human history? Perhaps what the first thing you think of is your own birthday. I don't know. Uh, that's what your mom thinks of, right? Uh, your birthday. Perhaps it was when the internet was created, when Al Gore finally decided to get to work, create the internet. Perhaps it was when Rome fell or when the Declaration of Independence was signed. Well, the Bible has, I think, a pretty clear view as to what some of the uh, most important days, and I'll give you five of them. The five most important days are this, the birth of Jesus Christ, when God became incarnate and took on flesh. The second is at the death of Jesus Christ, the atoning work when Christ took our sins upon himself and took them to the cross and bore the wrath of God the Father. The third would be the resurrection when Jesus defeated death, proving our justification, making death wimpy for all time for those that know him. The fourth would be ascension when Jesus took the throne room in heaven and rules and reigns from then on over all things and brings his kingdom to bear upon this world. That's, that's four. And the fifth is what we come to today, Pentecost, when the rule, that rule and reign of Christ, of the ascended Lord, comes to bear within the, the hearts of human beings, Pentecost. We don't understand Pentecost, large part because it's weird, isn't it? There's some weird stuff here. Acts chapter 2, 1 through 12, you'll see some of the bizarre things that happen at Pentecost. Picking up in verse 1, you follow along your Bible, and I'll read When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Pretty impressive, right? I'm talking about my reading. And we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. In verse 12, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? That is the question, right? What in the world does Pentecost mean? What, in, what is wind that everybody in town can hear? And Flames of fire, tongues of fire that come and like rest on people's heads. And people like Galileans. Galileans are the rednecks of the Mediterranean worlds. They talk like this. And suddenly they are like, they can speak like seven languages. That's, that's what's going on here. 
pretty bizarre stuff. What is the meaning of Pentecost? That's, I think it's the question that will direct our time this morning. We have three points for you as to what the meaning of Pentecost is. But in order to get there, I mean, let me explain a little bit about Pentecost and its place in redemptive history. It is a bridge. There are these places within the scriptures, within the story of God's redemptive work, in which there is a, a, a clear changing of the guards. There is a change in, which, in the way in which God appears to be working in this world, and this is very much one of them. What it, it means is there, Pentecost is a junction box of all of these themes throughout redemptive history. You can think with me, a junction box brings kind of, let's say, telephone lines or wires from all these different places and brings them and connects them to one particular place. That is what is going on in Pentecost, is there's these themes that have been built up throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, and suddenly we find them finding their place and coming to all together in Pentecost. It's like this, or like to give you another illustration, it's like an author who's developing themes in his story. And he's building these themes like a good author would. And he's building theme after theme after theme. And what we find in Pentecost is Pentecost is where all those themes suddenly come together and they're seeing how they all are brought together in one coherent way. But for us, unless you understand those themes, unless you can see its place in history, it appears to just be like this kind of convoluted mess of wires. You either had this, and behind my TV, I have my cable wires, my internet wires, and then the Wii, which the Wii, why are the Wii wires so long? And, like, and so there's just all this convoluted mess of wires going on. There's a lot of power there, a lot of things that help me with cable and internet and TV, that, and that's great. But if you were to try to go back there, you're kind of going, what, what is going on here? And in order to see the connection and where they go and what their significance is, it helps to undo each of those wires and, and, and follow them out to their logical ends. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Therefore, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time necessarily in Acts 2. We're going to spend a ton of time in the Old Testament building up and showing, leading up to Pentecost, to show us the implications of Pentecost and what it means. So the question is this, what does Pentecost mean? And the first point is this, it means that the glory of God is in us. And this is where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning. The glory of God is in us. I'm going to take you to another bizarre text this morning, Ezekiel chapter 1. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, we're going to read from verses 3 through 28. We're going to skip a few sections there, but we're going to read the majority of it, of Ezekiel chapter 1. And what I want to show you is this theme of the glory of God and how it is revealed and symbolized and represented in the Old Testament. And then we're going to come back to Acts 2 and show the connections but I'm going to point out some significant words throughout, Acts, throughout Ezekiel 1 that are similar manifestations to what we see in Acts 2. So follow along. It's a long reading. Follow along in your Bible or on the screen as I read. Verse 3, The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Shabar Canal. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And here he goes, verse 4, And as I looked, behold... A stormy wind. That sounds familiar. A stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and a fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, more fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. We're going to see this word likeness throughout Ezekiel 1, and we actually see it in Acts 2. 
in which the authors of Scripture, in trying to describe what they're seeing, keep having to use simile. They're going, it's like this. It's not this, but it's like this. So we continue. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. But each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. And it's going to go on to describe these living creatures. Essentially, they're angels. And verses uh, 7 through uh, 14. I'm going to pick back up now in verse 15. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth. Oh, that's great. So we've gone from living creatures to now a wheel. This is a crazy wheel. I saw a wheel on the earth besides the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. All right, so we have wheels that are doing like this with one another, four going in different directions, but within one another and connected to one another. 17, and when they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. This is the omnipresence of God's being revealed here in these four wheels. That God can go anywhere. God is anywhere. And their rims, verse 18, were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. This is the omniscience of God. God is all-seeing, all-knowing. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. And this is really important, verse 20. Wherever the Spirit wanted them to go, they went. So here's what you're seeing. These huge living creatures. Are you guys weirded out by now yet? Okay, you follow me. These huge living creatures are going on these four wheels. This somehow, this device, this moving device. And they're on this or with it. And they're going along with it. And wherever the Spirit of this wheel goes, they go. So living creatures go with the spirit wherever he goes, carrying on. And the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And when those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Let me stop real briefly. Let me give you a little bit of commentary because I know you're like, I mean, this is trippy. The interwoven wheels are going in all directions, as I said, right? This is the the omnipresence of God. That God can be anywhere, he can get anywhere, he is, he is available to go anywhere. But we also see the eyes, the omniscience, the all-knowingness of God. And as strange as they are, what is going on here, and is, is going to be made known a little bit more as we read on in Ezekiel 1, is that these wheels are the base for a chariot, for a warrior king's chariot. And what it's going to provide is in the old ancient Near East, uh, kings would not only have a throne that they would sit on in their palace, but they would also have a throne that they sat on on their chariots, okay? And this chariot is go- carried along with these living creatures. They, they, are kinda, they go along with it as heralds with this chariot. Picking up in verse 22. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was a likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. So this is going to be a throne that they're going to be describing here. And under the expanse, their wings, talking about the living creatures... Their wings were spread out above their heads. These are massive warrior angels. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its bodies. And verse 24 is really important. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty. Almighty's capitalized, it's God. And a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. 
Therefore, what's going on is as they, as they um, carry along with this chariot, the power and the might of the wings of these creatures is so mighty it makes this unbelievable sound. Sound familiar? And when they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse of their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. This is God. And upward from what had the appearance, had the appearance of his waist, I saw it, were gleaming metal, like the appearance of what? Fire. And closed all around, and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it, as were the appearance, again, of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance all around. And here's an important phrase. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of the one speaking. Brief note here, Ezekiel thought this was weird too. He was blown away by it. It wasn't like all Old Testament prophets were like tripping out on heroin and they kind of saw some crazy stuff. He thought this was bizarre, but he was also amazed by it. And what is clear from this text, as we see there at the end, is it's hard for us to imagine. And even the one who saw it couldn't even, it was hard for him to imagine it for him to describe what he saw. But what we see very clearly is that this is the throne room of God, the chariot of God in all of his glory. That's what's happening in Ezekiel 1. Let's go back to Acts 2. Let me connect some dots. I'm going to walk through the four phrases here in verses 2 and verse 3 to try to bring this to light in Acts 2. We've come to the first one. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. I had a panic moment yesterday. I was all prepared for my first point of this to talk about the wind. And in fact, every commentator I read talked about the wind. And I was reading, and I was all prepared. I was going to go, okay, the wind is really important. You know, it's the presence of the spirits, because spirit, the word ruach in Hebrew and pneuma in Greek, it means spirit and breath and wind. And I was going to go, hey, at creation, the spirit was there. By the breath of God, he breathed life. And now what's going on here is God is breathing new life here at Pentecost. But then I realized around noon yesterday, I had a panic moment in which I was like, wait a second. The manifestation, the phenomenon here is not wind. Wind is the description of the phenomenon. The phenomenon is sound. Sound. It is a sound like a mighty rushing wind. The wind is descriptive of the phenomenon. An enormous sounds. And here's, here's what is going on in Acts 2 and connected to Ezekiel 1. You remember in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, it says this about the, about the angels, about these living creatures. And as they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, the sound of like an army. Here's what's happening in Acts 2. With this sound of a mighty wind, brothers and sisters, this is the wings, the living creatures of God entering that room in all of their glory. That is what is happening here. For example, and then we see this in other places in the scriptures, that what precedes God, like any good king, who comes with a great kind of triumphant people, make noise as he enters. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, when it ta- and through 20, where it talks about God coming down on Sinai and all of his glory and fire, and he calls the people of Israel out. 
And he does so, it says that from Sinai comes a trumpet blast. But it wasn't the Israelites blowing the trumpets. It was the angels from on high blowing the trumpets. It was the living creatures that come with the glorious God. And that is what is going on in Acts 2. You see, just as an aside, those of you that know the story of Jericho, what do they blow in Jericho? They walk around the mart, they walk around the wall a number of times, right? And then they blow what? A trumpet. Do you think it was really the people of Israel with a few of their trumpets that blew down a wall? It was these trumpets going on at Sinai. And just as that, that was going on, so it is. The, the same thing that we see in Ezekiel 1, all the glory with all its bizarreness and its, its, its weightiness and its unbelievable, unimaginable vision, that is what is happening at Pentecost. So it sounded like a mighty wind. That's, wind. that's the first manifestation. The second is this. It says it filled the entire house. It filled the entire house. Now listen, we don't see filled anywhere within Ezekiel 1. But let me tell you, if you've got these living creatures and we've got these four wheels, and we have God on the throne, my guess is it filled some rather significant places. But what we see, whenever we see God's glory being made manifest in this world, it, wherever it enters, it fills. Let me give you two, two points from uh, the Old Testament. Exodus 40, verses 34, when they built, the people of Israel have built a tabernacle according to the way that God has called them to build it. When they're um, dedicating the tabernacle, what, what happens? God in his glory comes down and says this, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Later on in the history of Israel, in 2 Chronicles chapter, three, chapter 7, verse 1, when Solomon this time is dedicating the temple, it says this, And as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And what we also see in the Psalms, and we see in Habakkuk 2, is that eventually what we're going to see one day, we will experience at the end of all things, the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. And here next to what we see is that God's glory is filling this room. It's the glory of the Lord filling this room. And then we come to the third manifestation of the phenomenon. We come to fire. The presence of God in redemptive history is almost always signified or symbolized and revealed in fire. Divided tongues of fire. That's what happens in Acts 2. Fire comes in, divides and goes over their heads. Now listen, this is all over the place in the Old Testament. Let me just walk through a few examples. In Genesis 15, when God brings his presence down in a vision to Abraham, another bizarre scene where God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. So I want you to take some animals. I want you to slice them in half. You're going to create this kind of bloody row. You're going to slice one side of the animal over here and one side of the animal over here. And this is, this is typical of the way they would do covenants of the ancient Near East. And both parties of the covenant would then walk through this row. And what they were saying is, if I don't keep my part of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And yet, what we see in Genesis 15 is God says, Abraham, why don't you go to sleep for a little bit? And God walks through the cut-up animals. Only God walks through. And the manifestation that shows that it's God is as a blazing torch moves through the animals. We carry on. When God appears to Moses for the very first time in the wilderness, kids, how did he appear to Moses? In a burning what? Bush. A burning bush. The bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. That's crazy. Listen, I don't think there's any bugs on it. I think that bush got rather purified. 
and refined because God's fire, the fire of his holiness and his glory, purifies and sanctifies things. But what we see here is God, his presence is made manifest. And so God says, listen, Moses, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. A burning bush. And then we see the people of Israel are led by a cloud and also by a what? A pillar, a pillar of fire. When God comes down on Sinai, we already, saw, already read Exodus 19, God comes down on Sinai as fire. And what we saw over in Ezekiel 1, it goes out of its way to describe God and this, this one who's on the throne as one who has fire emanating from him, it seems. All right, I think you get the point, right? Sound, filling, fire. Make no bones about it. What is happening at Pentecost It is the glory of God and all the most imaginable visions of the Old Testament that we can bring to bear. It is that glory of God that is coming to bear in this room. That's what's happening in Pentecost. But the kicker is the last phrase and what makes it utterly amazing. The last phrase is this. It says this at the end of verse 3. And that fire, what does it say? Rested on each one of them. Do you realize what is happening at Pentecost? Where did this glory of God come down? Onto whom or onto what? It came down on the 120 waiting in the upper room. It came down on Jesus' disciples. It came down on his followers. And this glory of God can come down on us. That is the significance of Pentecost. You see it? The fire came down and it separated and it went over everyone. Here's what this means. And bringing up the language of the Old Testament, it means you and I, we are now the burning bushes. We are the burning bush, which God enters and resides, and we are not consumed. But the glory of God comes to be present with us. You want another image? We are Mount Sinai. We are the mountain of God in which he comes in his fire and rests on us. And the New Testament makes it clear that we are the temple of God's. Second Chronicles, right? The fire of God comes down into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And we are described in the New Testament as that temple. You are now the place where God's glory dwells. I see you're not getting it because your ears should blow off your heads. The significance, if you are an Old Testament believer, if you're one of the early Christians who saw what's going on and understand the implications of this, it would blow them. It would, they couldn't imagine this. They couldn't imagine that this was the mystery of what God was going to do in their lives, that God in all his magnificent glory would come down and reside in them, in them. No religion of the world would claim such a thing except Christianity. If Moses were here, you know, Moses, if Moses were here, if he shows up at Pentecost, he doesn't know about the crucifixion and all that, but he simply shows up. He's one of the people sitting out in Jerusalem. He hears the sound. And he's like, he shows up. He kind of gets dropped into history. And he's like, oh, what's going on? And he sees people getting the glory of God re- residing in them. He would go, wait a second, what? Moses is a pretty holy dude. Think about what Moses got to do. He got to experience God's glory in a taste, right? He got to see the pillar of fire. He got to see the burning bush. He got to go up on Mount Sinai. But what happened? When, God, when Moses says, God, I want to see and experience your glory, God goes, yeah, no, because you'll die. So let me, how about I stick you over here in a rock and hide you, and then I'm going to turn my back to you, and the shadow of my glory, you'll see that. And that's what happens. And yet from that one experience, when Moses goes down the hill, they go, whoa, Moses, whoa, bro, you got to cover that mug because you're a little bit too much for us. 
And Moses would go, wait a second. I would die if I saw the glory of God, and now the glory of God has come to live inside of them? This is earth-shattering. Now, two implications for you. Before we get to Moses' question, we'll come back to Moses' question, but two implications while we stop for just a second. Two implications for every single Christian. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming down on believers. And implication one is this. Every, 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 all Christians have the power of God in them. It is not those who get some second experience or some extra experience or some extra blessing. Whether your extra blessing is tongues or finding Reformed theology or going on a missions trip. All Christians have the power of the glory. That crazy, that crazy imagery in Ezekiel 1. I mean, we don't, we may not, we, we don't fully grasp it, but whatever we know is whatever's going on there, that is a mighty, colossal, glorious thing. And yet that has come to reside in us, that power. It goes out of its way in, in Acts chapter 2 to say that the fire separated and it went over, it says every one of them, all of them, says it multiple times. Every Christian, this is not just for the disciples. This is not just for a special few. This is for every Christian. Now listen, don't you think, in, in all the world, somebody gets to be the worst Christian. I mean, you ever thought about this? Somebody's the worst. Someone in the world is the worst, is the weakest Christian out there. The most weak, pitiful Christian in the world has the power and the glory of God residing in him or her. That's what this means. It doesn't matter if you're a little child. It doesn't matter if you became a Christian yesterday. What does he say? Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Is it because your faith is so great? No, you can have pathetic faith. You can have the faith of a mustard seed. It's tiny. It's barely noticeable. And yet because that faith connects you to this glorious God, you can move mountains. That's what it's saying. That's implication one. Implication two is every believer, every one, all, can I say it any other ways? Everyone is a beloved son on whom the Spirit rests. We read it today, actually, in our worship order, when the Holy Spirit, what we see, we're going to move out of the Old Testament, move into the New Testament. There's another place where we see the Holy Spirit manifest himself, and we use this word rest as we see in the end of verse 3. The Holy Spirit comes down and rests, and that place is when Jesus is baptized. And when Jesus is baptized with the Holy Spirit, when it comes down the manifestation of a dove, comes and rests upon him, and then we hear the voice of God the Father saying what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son. That, that means this. Listen, it doesn't matter what you've done. If, you're a, if you trust in Jesus, if you have the Holy Spirit of God in you, it means that you get to hear the voice of God say to you, you are my beloved child. And I am well pleased in you. Somebody, some of you desperately need to hear that today. And what is the spirit, in Romans 8, what is the spirit called? Romans 8, he's called the spirit of adoption. Adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. It is, you understand that it's the spirit's job. The role of the Holy Spirit not only is to fill you with power, but also come upon you and to whisper to you the fact that you are now God's as his son and daughter. This is, this is an unbelievable experience. This is something that's new in the New Covenant. You know, in the Old Testament, we almost never see God referred to as Father. Almost never. In fact, in fact really, I think it, was, it is never. We see Israel called God's son in two times, Hosea 11 and Exodus 4. 
Just these bizarre two times. Where the whole people of Israel are called God's son. By the way, Jesus is the, is the new Israel. He's the better son, just in case you're connecting dots. Anyways, but now that you're in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're now a son. You see, in the Old Testament, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't have dared called God Father in that way. And yet the primary way in which the, the New Testament calls us to, to think about God and to talk, about, talk to God is as a father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. One Puritan, I think, describes the difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant experience of God as Father. A guy named Thomas Goodwin, he, he referred to the, the, this, this image, and he speaks as a, as a man who's seeing a father and a son walking, and he's looking at them from a distance, from behind them. And he wa- watches a father and a son, and they're walking along together, and you know, they're, they're father and son. They're legally bound together, and that's wonderful. But then he says at one point, at some point they stop and the father stoops down and he looks at the son's eyes and he scoops the son into his arms and carries him along. He said, this is the role of the Holy Spirit. Listen, you may, be, you may say, man, I'm doctrinally, I'm legally God's son. But the role of the Holy Spirit is for you to experience in a fuller way your sonship in Jesus Christ. You see, that son, is, is, he's, he's not more of a son when he's in the father's arms but he's experiencing the delights of his sonship even more. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. To whisper to you God's favor for you. Now, we come back to Moses. Moses would have been awed by all this. He would have been amazed by all this. Any Old Testament believers would have. Because they, they would have, he would have known that the glory of God is not just, it didn't just display God's glory, but also display God's, God's holiness. And when you get in the holiness of before his holiness, and, he, and he, his fire, what does fire do? Fire consumes things. Now listen, we need fire. It's nice to be near fire, but if you touch fire, that's a problem, right? Fire, when you touch it, you go bye-bye. You get burnt. And that is how it is with God's glory, that we need to be near his glory, but yet when we come close to it, we are consumed by it. See, God's glory represents his holiness, but also the fact that he's refining, purifying power, that he's the one who beautifies things, but also he's, there's an inaccessibility because of his glory. We can't come close to him. We have to stay at a distance from him. So, what's going on here? You see God's power in judgment and wrath. There's multiple places where we see this. Sometimes you just, we see God's power coming, or his glory coming in the presence of fire, and that's a wonderful thing. We see some other places where it's really bad, right? Nadab and Abihu, they have a bootleg worship, some you know, black market worship practices. And what does God do? He sends fire down to get them. What is going on? Fire is a rather difficult problem for us. God's glory is a significant problem. Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you think God was like up there with like two sticks, like you know, rubbing them together and like blowing on them? Is that how he burned Sodom and Gomorrah? Or the ways in which, way in which he brought down judgment and wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah is he brought his glory and all of its weight to bear on that place. This is a problem. And so the question that Moses would be asking is, hey, they get to have the glory of God in them? Wouldn't that destroy them? Wouldn't that kill them? This brings us to number two, point two. Pentecost, what Pentecost means. Pentecost means that the mediator has made a way for us. The mediator has made a way for us. I ask you this question. Why does God send the Holy Spirit on Pentecost? Or another question would be, do you know that Pentecost did not start in Acts 2? They were all, Pentecost already existed. 
For instance, verse 1 of Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. God could have, Jesus could have sent the Holy Spirit any day after the ascension, right? He could have, anytime could have sent the Holy Spirit. Why this day? Well, there's significant representation symbolism here. What was Pentecost? Pentecost was an Old Testament and Israelite practice that God had given them and told them to practice. It was another feast that came 50 days after the Passover. And it had two significant understandings. One was that it was, came at the end of what was the harvest time. In which it was, a, it was called the Feast of Weeks, in which they would celebrate the abundance of the harvest that God was going to bring in, or that God had, been, had brought in for them. By the way, just as a precursor, at the end of Acts 2, when 3,000 people come to know Jesus, think this. Abundant harvest, Acts 2, 3,000 people. Okay, all right, so we go, So other implication of, of Pentecost is this. So there's the Feast of Weeks, but the other is this, that they had Passover, right, in Egypt, sets them free from slavery. 50 days after that is when God came down on Sinai and gave them the law. That's what they celebrate in, in Pentecost. And so what's going on at Pentecost and the symbolism of what's going on here is if you, we, we must, in order to understand it, we must look back to that day in Acts 19, or Exodus 19. And in Exodus 19, as we saw earlier, God's glory and all of its fire comes down on Mount Sinai and the trumpets blare and the people of Israel come, like they get woken up and they come out of their tents and they come out to see what is the ruckus and they come out and, they, and God is going to speak to them and they go, we can't handle this. They literally, that's what they say. They say, we cannot handle this. We will die if we hear God speak to us. Moses, you go. <laughs> Moses, we, hey, Moses uh, we'll die if we hear God speak to us anymore. We need you to go speak to God for us, right? This is Joe, or whatever his name, Joe in the uh, volcano. Moses, Moses te- heads up the mountain, up Mount Sinai, to go meet from God with God. What, is Mo- what role is Moses playing in that moment? He is a mediator. And he's going to go up and he's going to mediate. He's going to hear from God. He's going to bring God's words down from the mountain to speak to the people. The covenant that God is establishing with Israel. And he's going to be the one speaking from God to them and from them to God. We're going to see that he plays this role throughout his life. Because there's going to be this other place where Israel is going to misbehave over and over and over and over again. And completely violate the covenant. And God's going to be like, that's it. I'm done with them. I'm going to, you know, they're out. Peace out with Israel. And Moses comes to God as their mediator and says, please spare them. For your covenant promises, he is their mediator. And we see this role of mediator is played out throughout Israelite history. I think last week was the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, there was one day of the year in which the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and take the blood of, for a week, they would sacrifice lambs and goats and cows, and they'd take all that blood and they'd take it to the Holy of Holies. And for one day, one day and they even expected that guy to die. One mediator. We're going to tie something around your ankles in case God knocks you out, and we're going to be able to drag you back out. So none of us else, of us have to go into the Holy of Holies and get killed by God's glory either. They needed a mediator. But the thing is, that mediator, all they could do is maybe give them one representation one day a year. They couldn't get close to God. It couldn't get them next to God in God's glory, and it certainly couldn't mean that God's glory would come and live inside of them. What changed? What changed at Pentecost? Here's what changed. We have a better mediator. Moses goes up the mountain to be our mediator, to be the mediator of Israel. In the new covenant, the mediator is Jesus who climbs a mount 
and dies on a cross so that all the wrath of God's glory would be spent on him and not on you and me. That's what's going on. Moses was great. Jesus is greater. Moses is a great mediator. Jesus is the ultimate mediator. When, he, when we sin, Jesus prays for us and is our mediator before God in heaven right now. And what do we see? What happens when Jesus dies on the cross? What does Matthew tell us happens? Here at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the priest goes into what? The Holy of Holies. And what is torn when Jesus dies? The veil that separates the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, which means God's glory can now be known by all peoples. That's what's going on here. You see, the fire of God can enter our lives and it can do a purifying work. It can beautify us and it can empower us, but it no longer destroys us. That's how you can be the burning bush. That's how you can be Mount Sinai. And when God comes on you, it's like the burning bush. God purifies you as the bush but you're not consumed by it because we have a perfect and better mediator. Jesus is now has made God's glory in our life and now healing, empowering force, a beautifying and purifying force. That's what's going on at Pentecost. That's how Pentecost is able to happen. And what we see is they are baptized with fire. In fact, Jesus says that's what he's going to do himself. Mark 10, he says, John baptized with water. I'm going to baptize you with water and with fire. With fire. But it will not consume you. It will not destroy you. You see, Isaiah 43, some of you like to sing this song. When you pass through the fires, it will, no longer, it will not consume you. That comes courtesy of the Pentecost work. The fact that Jesus took the consuming power of God's glory so that now all you get is God's purifying power. It may hurt, but it does not destroy you. Point three, the meaning of Pentecost. It says the result of this baptism of the Holy Spirit and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, what happens? What happens? Now, some of you are going to immediately jump to tongues, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But here's actually, here's the point that I want you to get. What happens is that we see the gospel of God reuniting us. Pentecost means the gospel of God is now reuniting us. What happens when they have been baptized and filled by the Spirit of God? Well, very quickly, I'm just going to go over the news clippings of what happened. The AP report. They began to speak in tongues, in other languages, in such a way, all the disciples, in such a way that all these people from all these other nations could understand them. They began to speak in other languages, literally. And at that time, because of this, this feast, this Feast of Weeks, Pentecost was being celebrated, Jews who had been scattered all over the world had now come back to Jerusalem. This is like a classic religious pilgrimage. They probably couldn't do this every year because they have to be gone for a long time. But they would come back to Jerusalem, and they would stay for Passover, and they would stay through the Feast of Weeks or through Pentecost. And they would enjoy this time there. And so there's all these people there for the celebration for the Pentecost uh, Feast from all over, the, all over the world, and they all speak various different languages. And so this is, def- this is a miracle is what happens here. When they speak in these various languages in such a way that other people from around the world can understand them. But let me point to a few, a few points of clarifications and a word of caution in regards to this tongue speak. There are those who immediately read this section in Acts, and what they immediately jump to is the fact that we should all speak in tongues. What they're really excited about from Acts 2 is that, look at this, we can speak in different languages. And these are, these are gospel-loving, Bible-loving, Jesus-loving people. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of, them are known, some of them are known as Pentecostals, 
They come from various backgrounds, Church of God, Assembly of God. Charismatic is also what they can be called. And what they say is what you can expect is when you are baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit, you can then speak in tongues. And what shows that you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit is that you then speak in tongues in this way. Okay. Now let me answer a couple of things in response to that. First and foremost is this. What is going on in Acts 2 is clearly not tongues in the way that Charismatics and Pentecostals talk about it. They are talking about a spiritual prayer language, which exists in Acts and exists in the New Testament. It is totally legitimate. But that is not what is going on in Acts 2. What is going on in Acts 2 is literally linguistic cultural languages. That's why all these nations are mentioned. That's what's going on here. The second, though, that I also would say in, re, in, in kind of pushing back on those who make Acts 2 all about speaking in tongues is this. The miracle of the ability to speak in another language is not the point of Acts 2. It's not the point. It's, it's the sideshow. It's not the main events. Let me ask you this. What is the purpose of miracles? Is the purpose of miracles to go, hey, I'm a miracle, look at me. Is that what, like, no, miracles, the purpose of miracles is to point to something else. All, and what we see in the, in the scriptures is that miracles always happen in order to prove the truthfulness or the authority or the validity of either the messenger or the message that he gives. Okay? That's what's going on with miracles. The focus of our attention should not be on this miracle, the fact that they can speak in tongues or in other languages suddenly, but it should be on what they said in those tongues. And verse 10 tells us what they said. What does it say? It says this, they were telling of the mighty works of God. This word works or wonders is translated uh, in the Greek, uh, is, comes from this Greek word megaleos, which literally means the mighty works of God or the mighty acts of God. And here we come back to the Old Testament again. This, is, this, this terminology, and it's very clear that it's trying to bring in Old Testament terminology, that this is how the Old Testament people of Israel, you see it particularly in the Psalms, where they would speak about God's saving work and relieving them from slavery in Egypt and leading them across the Red Sea. That's what it speaks about. God's mighty acts. It's what they sing in the song of Deborah. And they're like, yay, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. It's talking about the mighty acts of God. And so now what are we saying? What are we talking about when we talk about the mighty acts of God in the New Testament? Listen, that's nice to point back to what the people of Israel experienced, but there's a mighty act that is now abundantly beyond that. And it is the work of Jesus Christ, the mediator who said, listen, I have made a way for that glorious creature, whoever he is in Ezekiel 1, I have made a way for that glory to come reside in you. Now that's a mighty work. And that is what they testify to. Let me be very clear. The great point of Acts 2, the normative experience of the Christian life that we get to be a part of when we're filled with this Holy Spirit is you proclaim the gospel. That is what is exciting about Acts 2. That you get to proclaim to all peoples, and maybe, you, maybe you're really good at languages. Maybe you know six or seven. Some of you can do that. Most of you can't because you're from the South. But most, some of you can. You've been gifted with the ability to speak multiple languages, and you can, you, can, you can share the gospel in Japanese or in Chinese or in Spanish or in Russian or whatever it may be, and that's awesome. But here's the great ability of having those tongues is you can tell everybody in all those languages about how great God is. That is the point. That is the point. The exciting thing that's going on and what the apostles are super excited about here is not the fact that they get to speak in tongues. Let me give you an example of this. Paul, 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 man, Paul's a great, I mean, he's a charismatic, bro. Paul, not only does he speak in multiple languages, but Paul has the private, the private prayer language. 
So, I mean, he's, I mean, he's got it all. That's great. But what do we see? What is Paul excited about later on in his ministry? Is he excited about the fact that he got to speak in tongues and he has some kind of spiritual prayer language? No. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, 7 and 8. Of this gospel, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. And here's the kicker, verse 8. To me. He's amazed that it's him. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given. Was the grace given that he gets to speak in tongues? No, the grace was given that what? That I get to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable and unreachable fathoms of God's graciousness. That's what he says. That he gets to be a proclaimer of the gospel. And guess what? This is the enormous experience of every single Christian. The great gift of Acts 2 is not that you get to go... we, we should all love to be able to, we should want to speak in different languages. We should want a private prayer language. I think it's totally cool. But I would say this, the, the desire of the private prayer language over actually getting to proclaim the gospel is like the, the man who goes from the wedding banquet to his wedding chamber, and what he always wants to talk about is the car he drove from the wedding banquet to the wedding chamber. You get my point? There's a greater glory the night of your wedding than the, than the car that you rode to the wedding chamber. Who cares? Who cares? Listen, here's what this means. It means you can be the greatest redneck, hick proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, what matters is that you're the gospel, a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what matters. That still begs the question, why in the world does Luke go into such detail to share about all the nations represented here at Pentecost? One last thing this morning. And here's the answer. Because by deliberate miracle, Luke is showing the restorative power of the gospel that will undo the fall of man, all the things that mankind has done. Restore, restore mankind. You might remember there's another story early in the Bible where there's all these nations, or there's all these languages that become, come into being. You may have remembered it from Sunday schools. In Genesis 11, it was called the Tower of What? Babel. And what do they do in the Tower of Babel? They tried, to, they tried to bring glory for themselves. In fact, they tried to get to glory. They said, because we're so awesome, we're going to build a tower all the way up to heaven and we can get to God. And they, in their pride and in their arrogance, God said, that is not the way you do it. You cannot reach me that way. You're too sinful. And he came down in judgment. And so what did God do in his judgment of the peoples? Here it is, the people of Babel, they now speak the same language And yet what? They can't understand each other. What's happening at Pentecost? Suddenly, they speak tons of different languages. And yet through the gospel, they can understand each other. Here's what's happening. Pentecost is the first first taste of the reversal, the redeeming work of the gospel in this world. That Jesus is, is restoring. He is turning back and he's flipping over the curse that man has brought on itself. All the things that we have done in our arrogance, all the disunity that we have, and what we see, the first implication of the gospel when they go out and they proclaim it is that they are unified and restored to one another. Brothers and sisters, this is why people are losing their minds from the fact that we look around our church in America and we go, there, there's something wrong. The Spirit has not, is not here. Because what do we find? We find black churches and white churches and Korean churches and Chinese churches, and yet the very first of the gospel is that we're restored to one another. The very first one. And yet, here's where we go. You know what? You know what? 
I don't think I want to have that kind of worship style. Then you don't get it. Then you don't get it. Here's how we know that the Spirit of God has fallen on us. It's when we become a people who proclaim the gospel so boldly and so passionately. And we're so, we're willing to be restored to other people that your worship style doesn't matter. And your cultural preferences no longer matter. The church in America desperately needs that. And we need that in this church. Listen. If we look around at our churches in in this day, we would say we desperately need the Holy Spirit to fall afresh on us. Now, here's the deal. How do we make that happen? How do we make that happen? I can preach so I'm blue in the face, and I've tried. I mean, I'm about to enter concussion protocol, right? I'll be out next week. I mean, literally, I'm going to be out next week. I'm not preaching. But I can preach so I'm blue in the face. And we can have really great programs, and it is pointless unless the Holy Spirit comes in fire. And so here's what I would ask. Here's what I ask. Would you plead for the Holy Spirit to come? Would you plead for the Holy Spirit to come into your life in this way? And listen, you may evaluate your life and you go, man, I have never, I've never thought of God's glory in this way. I've never understood God's gospel. I've never been this excited about proclaiming the gospel to people who I'm not even like. You might have good reason to question whether the Holy Spirit has ever entered your life. And I don't say that kind of warning very often. Now, some of you are in a place like this where you got married maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, and you know how it is. You had your first love, and it was really exciting. And the love has waned. You've experienced a filling, but it's been a long time. So both of you need to plead with the, for the same thing, for the Holy Spirit of God to come in power upon your life, to bring that vision of Ezekiel 1, that glory to bear upon you. Would you pray that? Would you be so bold to pray for that? Holy, holy, holy Spirit of God, would your glory fall on us? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I just, um, I hope I haven't scared them. Between Ezekiel 1 and my passion. But gracious Heavenly Father, I just I pray that we would be willing to pray this very bold and very dangerous prayer for the Spirit of God to come. That we say, God, would you work and would you move? Would your fire fall on us? God, I pray that for King's Chapel. That your Spirit doesn't simply fall on individuals, it falls on groups of people. It comes in revival upon whole groups of people. And so, God, do that here. Let me give you a second. Why don't you pray and ask God that his spirit would fall on you, and then we'll close.
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Come in your power and your glory upon us, God, we ask. Amen. Amen.